This morning finds us in John chapter 12, if you will please turn in your Bibles there. My thanks to Ralph for um, his quick thinking and um, having things prepared uh, in the off chance that I was not going to make it back last week. Um, I ended up getting stranded in Minneapolis and uh, could not make it back to Binghamton until about 1 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday. So uh, thank you, Ralph, for that. I very much appreciate you having that uh, prepared. I told him there was about a 1% chance. Um, turns out it was a little bit higher than I had estimated. And uh, yeah, <laughs> and so he did have something ready, and uh, I really much appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, it is a little bit fitting anyway that this sermon happens right before Christmas. Uh, I didn't really plan it like that. It just, well, as you know, happened. But the light of heaven coming into the world and revealing things about the world uh, is exactly what Christmas is all about. It revealed to us aspects about God and it revealed to us aspects about the world in which we live. There is no agreement between light and darkness. That's one of the things that light does. You ever try to walk around the house uh, in the middle of the night when it's, everything's dark, no nightlights or anything like that, and you try to find your way around? Everything's hard to distinguish, isn't it? Trying to figure out one way or another. Uh, the only thing that you can find, this is a promise, if there's a missing Lego, you will find that. <laughs> it's the only thing you can find in the dark because everything else is indistinguishable. You can't figure out... Uh, by the way, our eyes, and this is one of the great things that God uses this picture, our eyes cannot actually see color in the dark. We can only distinguish black and white, which is why everything looks like an old movie at nighttime, because the types of our eyes that see in low light can only see black and white. They can only see contrast. And this is one of the things that John will always use as Jesus' references to light and darkness to draw this distinction in the world. In darkness, it is hard to distinguish what is anything, right, wrong, up, down. We're, we're trying around everywhere to figure out what in the world is going on. And then Christ enters. And this is the picture that John has been showing us since the opening of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. All things were made through him. There was nothing that was made, having been made, that was not made through him. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not comprehended it. The darkness attempts to overcome it, but what do we know? Light will always overcome dark. If the room is too bright, what do you do? You set up a darkness candle and it turns out the lights? No. And John will use this picture to show the very nature of how Christ entered into this world. To dispel the darkness, it just needs light. To dispel light, darkness has no strength. This picture should sit high in a Christian's mind because oftentimes the church will live in times of grave darkness. The answer to all of these ills is to trust in Christ. Why? Because as the light of the world himself, as the light of heaven shining into this world, darkness not only cannot comprehend it, it cannot overcome it. 
This is why Jesus tells us to be of good cheer. He has overcome the world. And in today's passage, we see Jesus referring to these things and drawing our attention to the heavenly side of all that is going on. Uh, And it is just simply a treat, and it is a sermon I have looked forward to for a couple of months. So let's, uh, and you can imagine my sorrow last Sunday, not being able to do it. So now it's uh, boiling. I would ask you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read this. John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come into the world to judge the world, Excuse me, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say, what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Our Father, we pray the same for our own mouths. May we speak to one another as we ought. And when we do not, may we quickly forgive one another. We are all of us imperfect. We are all of us still within dwelling sin. May we be quick to forgive, quick to listen, slow to anger and wrath. We pray, Father, for these things, for we know that they are not part of us naturally. May we have a higher view of Christ this day because of your word. May we love you more than when we walked in these doors. We pray in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. There's about 87 different directions you could take this passage. Uh, I'm going to take it one of those. I, I, want to, I want you to see Christ as he portrays himself. John uses this passage in so many different ways in his gospel because it's one of the central statements of Christ about his very nature. Jesus himself has claimed to be so much more than just a random rabbi in Galilee. I am the good shepherd, he claims. I am the bread from heaven. I am over and over and over again. And it is here that we expound upon his statement, I am the light of the world. He who believes in me may not remain in the darkness. What is the first thing we learn about ourselves in our natural state? Are we children of light or children of darkness? That should be pretty straightforward. Say it loud. We're children of darkness in our natural state. Sorry, I didn't emphasize. In our natural state. 
Without Christ, we all start out children of darkness. We do not have the ability to create light. We do not have the ability to put a kibosh on the light. We cannot overcome it. We can't even comprehend it. And John is trying to draw us into this appreciation that the world itself that we are born into and us outside of Christ have no ability when compared to the light. It is, it is the stuff that hides from the light. It's very much what shadows are. It's the part that the light hasn't gone to yet. That's where darkness is. And so when John is announcing that Christ has come into this world, being the one uh, non-synoptic gospel, and he does not even spend any time on the advent of Christ or the promise of his birth or anything like that, he picks it up in the ministry of Christ. By reminding us that this is the same God that created all things and now has entered into his things. And he walks around and as John says, we beheld the glory of God. It was full of grace. It was full of truth. And for those who preserve and desire to preserve darkness rather than light, they do so because their works are evil. Because the light exposes our hearts. But then there's a whole other group. Those that Jesus had spent an entire chapter in chapter 6 saying, those whom the Father has given me, I will in no wise cast out. I won't lose a single one of them. When the light of Christ shines into their hearts, they do not hide their actions. They repent and trust in Christ. Christian, that describes you. It describes me. And all who have placed their faith in Christ unto salvation. And this is where Jesus starts. And this is why John quotes this. Look at verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. One of the challenges that came against Jesus was that you claim yourself to be the son of God. You claim God as your father, making yourself equal with God. They said this in John chapter 5, and they say it is for this reason that we are desiring to kill you. You, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And what is John saying? He is God. And if he was lying, they would have been right to put him to death. They would have been right to seek his life. But what does Jesus say? If you believe in me, and whoever believes in me doesn't just believe in me, believe in the one who sent me. There is perfect unity between the God who promised to send Christ into the world and the Christ who is sent into the world. There is no distinguishing the intention or the salvific effect. It means that when we go to the Old Testament, we should expect to see the same kind of salvation existing there. Because the same God is interacting with people. What do we see? We see in the New Testament, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What do we see in the Old Testament? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him in what? 
He will make straight your paths, or he will guide you down the paths of righteousness. There's about 18 different ways it's said. He will distinguish for you the things of this world. Christian, do you know that we have an answer for why we suffer the way we do? Do you know that we have an answer for those things in this world that continually bring destruction into this? And we are not bouncing around the dark trying to figure it all out. No, we have Christ who has given us light and immortality and life in the gospel. What things God has revealed belong to us. And what things he has not revealed belong to him. And what Jesus says here, if you've seen me, you've seen him who sent me. In the very previous verses, John draws out the picture of what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6 and says, Isaiah saw Christ's glory beforehand. You ask Isaiah who he's seeing, he's seeing the God of Israel. You ask John who Isaiah saw, he saw Christ before his birth. And here Jesus says the very same thing. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. There's a perfect unanimity in what they're doing, what their intention is, and what your perspective will be. Do not expect to parse one against the other. There are many who see the Father as wrathful and vengeance, who see the Son as gracious and merciful, and who see the Spirit as a power that they can wield. These are incorrect. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in perfect agreement with all things. They are not to be pitted against one another. You are not to approach Christ because he is easier to approach than the Father. You are to approach Christ because he is the way and the truth and the life, and he is the path to the Father. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. If you believe in him, you believe in the Father. Jesus says, to follow that up in verse 46, I have come into this world as light. And it's with purpose. It's not just to reveal the works of darkness. He's already talked about that in John chapter 1. This is why the world rejects Christ. This is not a new concept in Christianity. This has been part of the Jewish history. It was even part of Greek thought before that. I mentioned when we discussed that previously. Even Plato wrote, if a perfect person was ever born into this world, we'd kill him. Because he understood the depth of wrongdoing. Somebody that is more well-behaved than us brings out our sin into our mind, doesn't it? It's humiliating. And when Christ entered the world... He showed us who we are. Light came into the world. Darkness hated it. Why? Because their works were evil. And light reveals the heart. So what does he say? He says, I came into the world as light. But then there's intention. There's intention beyond those who do not believe. He says there is actually intention, Christian, for you. So that those who believe may no longer walk in darkness. 
You say, but sometimes, does not our life still feel like bouncing around in the dark? Sometimes. Especially if you orient yourself to trying to parse out the future. Look to the past. See what Christ has done, what he has accomplished, what he has promised, what he is intending to do again. Do you know as much about the future as you know about the past? No. And if you always orient yourself to trying to figure out what's next, you're going to miss the lessons that we already learned. When Christ came into the world, it was not so that we could figure out the future. It was so that we could figure out what in the world was going on. And what we have learned in Christ is that there is life in no other name. There's not a single other person that can bring purpose out of this darkness. Because every other person is part of the darkness. And that's why Jesus says, in order for light to shine into this world, it had to come from outside of us. He could not just be a good teacher, as some of the liberal theologians would tell us. No. He could not just be a moral man. He could not just be a man. Either he is God or he is darkness. This is what John is showing to us. What has John been saying this whole time? Why is he telling us this story? Why is he writing this gospel? After all three of the other gospels are written, John takes it upon himself and says, you know what? I'm going to write an evangelistic one. It has an entire different purpose and spin. The other three gospels, synoptic, they follow along the same trajectory, largely tell the same story, almost from three different perspectives. And John comes in and tells something entirely different. He says, reader... I'm going to speak to you. You in the darkness where you live. And I'm going to tell you about the light that came into that world. The title of this whole series, That You May Believe and Live, comes from chapter 20, where John argues, this is why I'm writing this. Not only is there no life in anyone else's name, there is no light in this world outside of him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is also the light. And John is reminding us of this over and over and over again so that when we see who he is, when we believe on him, and thereby by extension believe on the Father who sent him, we may not remain in darkness. Nobody likes their sins exposed, but Christ will see to it that ours are. And then he will provide the solution for them. It is not the habit of the Christian to hide their sins. It is the habit of the Christian to repent of sins, to confess them, and to trust in Christ still. Two weeks ago, I asked you, I asked all of us, I said, give us the best shot. If salvation depended on you from here on out, how long would you remain a Christian? We're readily to admit it when we haven't done something. Why are we so reticent to admit it when we have? There's a story of a woman 
who did not come to church one Sunday, and this was unlike her. She was there every Sunday, and she wasn't, and so her pastor called her up. Is everything okay? You're not feeling well? You know, not to, you know, just to ask, is everything okay? It was so out of character for you. And she says, Pastor, I would have, but I lost my temper in the grocery store this week in front of some of the members of our church. I couldn't possibly show my face in church yet. What do you think his answer was to her? Where else would you go? Where else are you going to be encouraged to look at Christ instead of finding satisfaction from a week where you didn't lose your temper? Where else would you go where confession of sin and joint repentance and focusing in on Christ again would be the order of the day? If you intend to come next Sunday, why? Is it because you didn't lose your temper that week? Is it because you did all things well that you now earned the right to be able to show your face in church? No. All that will do is teach you to hide your sins. Christians confess their sins. Christians turn from their sins to Christ again and again and again. One of the Protestant theologians described the Christian life as a life of repentance. This is what we do. We hate the darkness. And when darkness comes out of our hands, we admit it and we turn to the light because darkness cannot fix darkness. We turn from it and we turn to the light and say, Son of God, shine on me again. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Can you hear the psalmist praying for the same thing a thousand years before Christ? Search me and try my heart. See what wicked way is in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Why? Because we don't know the depth of our own sin. There is a reason why when I lead us in confession of sin here every Sunday morning, I pray the two greatest commandments because in those two are all of our failures. We have not loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbor as ourself. There's not a one of us that has not broken both of those many times this week. There is not one of us who will not break both of those many times this coming week. Do not be ashamed when sin is seen publicly. Rejoice that God has provided a fellowship in which to confess and find absolution. And to be reminded of the sacrifice of Christ no matter what occurs. Where else will you turn? To yourself? You just let yourself down. Why would you turn to yourself? You wouldn't trust in yourself if you were someone else. 
Christ is the only solution for these things. And as he expresses to them in verse 46, I have come into the world as light so that those who believe in me will no longer walk in darkness. Will no longer remain in the darkness. That is his central relationship here. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them. In other words, you think that you can find light somewhere else? You think you can go to the depths of philosophy and find it there? You think you can go to this culture and find meaning, purpose, and value? Good luck with that. You think you can go to the false religions of this world and find light? You won't. Christ himself is the only light that pierces through this present darkness. And when he says these things, he says, if you hear my words and you do not keep them, I'm not here to judge you. And if you listen to foolish false teachers, they will stop the sentence right there and say, see, Jesus doesn't judge you. And they will pit Jesus against the Father as if God somehow is split amongst himself in some disagreement. They'll say, see, Jesus doesn't judge anyone. He's just fine. He, he, everyone's great. Everything's fine. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. Yes, he does. He eats with tax collectors and sinners to call them to repentance, not to validate their sins. And what does he say? I'm not here to judge you this time. What does he say? If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That is what I am here for right now. And you can see it in the very next verse as to what their outcome will be. The one who rejects me, says, and does not receive my word, he has a judge. My words. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. End of story. There is no other source of protection on that day. This is not a matter of God speaking to people and saying, I really, really want you to believe in me, but I can't figure out how to say the words right, and maybe if I appeal to you, but I love you tons and tons until you die, and now I will judge you. Did you ever hear a disjoint in that message? Yeah, it's because it makes no sense. The message is this. There is a day on which he has fixed the judgment of this world, and he has given assurance of that by raising Christ from the dead. Therefore, hear the command of God, repent and believe in the gospel. Believe the light that has entered in this world because everything else vying for your allegiance is by very nature darkness. It is why he is the only way. It is why he is the truth. It is why he is the life. It is why, as he says in the Sermon on the Mount, those who hear my words and does them, he will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the floods came and the rains caused the river to overflow, it beat against that house and yet it stood. But the one who hears my words and does not do them, who does not believe in me, who does not trust in me as way, truth, and life, He's like a fool. He builds his house on sand. The houses look the same. 
until difficulty comes. Until the rains come and the floods rise and great is the destruction of that life. These are the words of Christ. And as he says here, I am not here this time to judge the world. You want to hear of the next time he comes, you are welcome to read the book of Revelation as a bedtime nightmare fuel for you. Perfectly fine. Because therein you will see Jesus using the same words of his mouth that will still bring the same condemnation to those who refuse to believe in him. I am the way of life. If you have placed your trust in anything else, Babylon, empire, or self, or whatever the case may be, you will meet your end. The message of God and of Christ is the exact same today as it will be at the judgment seat. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will live. And John is writing this and he is showing us in so many different ways and peeling it apart to show us this is not just agree that he is right. This is devote yourself to this. This is depend on him. We have nothing good in our hands to bring. Outside of Christ, we are just darkness. What has shown into our life is not owed to us. What comes out of us that is light is owed to God. Without the grace of God, it would still just be me, a creature of the dark who loves the darkness because it covers over and hides my sin. But in Christ, the exposer of hearts and intentions, we cannot just judge our actions on the outside and hide our intentions from others. God sees the heart. Do you ever see that and think that that was good news? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I promise you, that's not great news. Not if you are trying to hide sin. Not if you are trying to hide unbelief in Christ. John will not allow us to read this and not expose our own hearts to it. Jesus says it plainly, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them. In other words, he does not believe on me. There is one work of the Father. Believe on him whom he has sent. Trust in him. His words, his light, his sacrifice, his righteousness, his life, and you will live. If you are just coming to find good wisdom of how to live in the dark, you're not going to find it. Christ is either everything or he is nothing. Do you see this line of demarcation? You believe in me, you will not remain in darkness. If you do not, you will. It is as distinct as light and dark. And as he says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word already does have a judge. I don't need to do another one. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken only on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And Christian, I'll remind all of us, so have we been given. 
We have been given the message of the gospel. We have no right to change a syllable of it. We have no right to alter it. We have no right to make changes to it to make it more palatable so that we can convince people to become followers of Jesus without actually seeing their own sin. If we are to do that, and there is, there is a term that people use for watering down the gospel, it's just a false gospel. To simply put forward, God wants to be your friend, won't you let him in, is nowhere to be found in Scripture. What is to be found in Scripture, confess with your mouth and repent and turn to Christ Trust in him as the only solution and the satisfying solution, and you will live. That's it. Because if we do something else to that message, first of all, on what authority do we have to alter that singular message? None. And what Jesus says here is the same thing that came from the Father, is the same thing that came out of the lips of Jesus. He has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Then Jesus turns to his apostles and gives them the message and gives them the commandment, what to say and what to speak. And then they write down for the church what we call the New Testament, telling us what to say and what to speak. And we in our pride come at it and say, I got a more palatable way to do that. I've got a more winsome way, a nice way to do that. That just simply is fancy talk for setting aside the commandments of God for the traditions of men. We must give people the gospel. Remember, the gospel of John, in all of its power, in all of its directness, is meant to be evangelistic. Not only is John intending it to be evangelistic because he writes it explicitly to be so, the early church copied down the Gospel of John in little tracts just like we do and handed them out all over the place so that people would hear the message of the light that came into this world and believe on him and be saved. They did not seek to alter a syllable of it, but instead expose people to the light. Imagine, imagine trying to change the words of Jesus to make them more palatable. Do you know what you're doing? You're putting a filter in front of the light so that the darkness isn't insulted by it. That is not what John is doing. What John is doing is he is opening the aperture and saying, here is the light of the world. Believe on him as he reveals himself to be. Believe in him not. Reside in the darkness and play your hand. There is no solution at the end of that. Why? Jesus says in verse 50, I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Christian, what has brought you eternal life? A watered-down message of the gospel or the gospel in its full force? 
What has spoken to your heart and brought great comfort when you sin in high treason against the God who made you? Where has comfort come from? That Jesus wants to sit down with sinners and be nice to them and not really deal with their sin, but just kind of be their friend? Or has all of your comfort come from the cross of Christ that the wrath that you have earned has been dealt with and it is finished? Which brings comfort? Which brings satisfaction? Which is the actual gospel? God being okay with your sin or God forgiving it and dealing with it and turning you into sons and daughters? That is why we bring that message. You say, well, what if they don't receive it? Don't change it. You can explain it a hundred different ways. Do not fall into the trap of trying to make it more palatable. You want to make it more clear? Make it more clear. Describe it in different ways. Describe it. Explain why a cross was necessary. Explain why sacrifice was necessary. Explain the severity of sin. Explain everything that they may rightly understand what you're expressing, but don't change the gospel in order to convince people to follow a Christ they would prefer. There is but one Christ, and he is the light of the world. To make him more palatable to sinners is to turn him into one. And it is so tempting It is something I pray towards myself often that I worship and I serve God as he reveals himself to be rather than how I would prefer him to be. If we're honest with ourselves, there are aspects about God, his nature, and his purpose in this world that we would prefer to be different. Right? Sometimes we think we know better. Sometimes we think clarity would be better. If God just revealed to me exactly what was going on, I'd totally agree with him. Right? My goodness, we think so highly of ourselves. We can't even handle the first and greatest commandment. Do you really think you can handle the minutia to which God directs his universe? His Ways are so high and his thoughts are so high we cannot comprehend them. And yet we think we know better. That is the ancient sin called hubris, what we call pride. And for us to look at this, to reject the words of the light that has come into this world, Jesus says, you don't even need another judge. Just by saying that, is enough to be your judge at the end of days. Just my saying that. Why? Because the commandment is eternal life. At the end of all of this, trusting in Christ, believing on the one that the Father has sent, is eternal life. What is it that John 3.16 says? I'm relatively certain we can all quote that. God so loved the world. He was not against the creation he made. This was not something else that he came to. No, he made the world in order to set his love on those who would believe on Christ. What does he say? 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that all those who believe in him would have eternal life. Every single person that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, every one of us who has placed their faith in him, every one of us who has placed their dependence on him, their hopes on him, all their trust on him, they have an indestructible life. Even though they pass through the grave, even though they die, yet will they live. Isn't it strange that the commandment of God is not do all the works of the law and then you will live? That's what the false religions of this world tell us. Try your best and maybe God will be merciful. Do all the works exactly right and you will live. What's the problem with that message? It's not that the law of God is bad. It's that it's incapable to bring life out of this dark person. The law told me not to do this and instead to do that. And what did me do with that? I created all sorts of ways to sin. It's like when you were a kid. I don't know if any of you had older siblings, but if you had an older sibling that was in charge of you while your parents were gone, they give the instruction, okay, no roughhousing. I don't want you to break that vase in the living room. And what does your mind immediately go for? That vase? Maybe we should roughhouse around it and get as close as we can without messing it up. That is how our hearts react to the law of God. Paul reminds us of it in Romans 7. I wouldn't have even known what it was to covet somebody else's stuff unless the law came in and said, oh, by the way, dark person, don't covet. Only to reveal to us that we are not by nature children of light. We love the darkness. It gives us independence. It means we get to determine good and evil. We get to take on the knowledge of good and evil. Sound familiar from the Garden of Eden? We get to invite in the knowledge of good and evil and weigh things out for ourselves. We don't even need God anymore, right? We thought we could take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and hold good and evil into our two hands and we thought that we had the ability to choose the good, but what happened? Evil was a force that we could not prevent and it infiltrated us through and through because we took on something that we did not have the ability to control and that is evil. As John Milton wrote, the fruit of that forbidden tree brought all our woe. And Jesus comes in and says, let me tell you about the other tree, the one of life. Let me tell you about what you can eat and live forever. Let me tell you about the bread from heaven. Let me tell you about the light from heaven. 
because the solution can no longer come from the earth. It must come from heaven. It must come from the very throne of God because if it comes from anything else, it will not only let you down, you will not live. The one who trusts in himself, even though he is living, he is already dead. And the one who believes on Christ, though he dies, yet will he live. Those two sides are made so clear throughout the rest of the book of John. And as he spills this all out, he says all of it will stand or fall on the person of Christ. Everything. And so for those who think that they can make something out of Christ that he does not make of himself, Peter warns us, false teachers that take part of the gospel and lead astray people to something other than Christ to serve their own lusts, to serve their own intentions, those are the teachers that the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. If you don't believe me, it's one of the most terrifying passages in Scripture, 1 Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 2. You can read that also for nightmares tonight. Because he warns us of this reality that people will take the simple message of the gospel and will add to it in order to direct people's devotion away from Christ to themselves. We, we do not want people to raise us up in their minds. And so we freely confess our sins. We freely repent of our sins that we may not put ourselves above anyone else and instead exalt only Christ. This is what John is doing. He is well on in years at this point. The last surviving apostle, how quickly could he have written a gospel that tried to spin everyone's allegiance to Christ to him? I'm the last apostle. Let me tell you about some secret stuff that Jesus has never told anyone else through any other apostle. No. Instead, John chooses his last years, most likely in his 80s at this point, to write this message and saying, after all of this time, after all of these messages, after all of this church, it is still only about Christ. Christian. That same message is on our lips today. After all these centuries and after all of this time, it is still only about Christ. You will not find life or light in anyone else's name. It is why Christmas is so important to us and it is why Easter is so important to us. They express to us the hope that what has broken into this world is light and he has exposed our sin, and happy are we now to repent and turn to him. And if you have not, hear the commands of Christ. Repent and believe in the gospel. Why should you die? When life is had in his name. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that that light of heaven shines into our hearts. Expose our hearts even to our own minds, we pray, that whatever wicked way is in us that is even unseen by our craftiness, 
the light of heaven, expose it. Give us gratitude and excitement to repent and to see Christ glorified rather than ourselves. Father, we pray for humble hearts. We know that you are able to humble those who will not humble themselves. And so we pray, Father, that for all of us here, we humble ourselves in your sight, that in due time you may lift us to heaven. We pray for this with all our hearts. Amen.